Hi, I'm John Foster. Hi, I'm Josh White. And this is Left to Burn, the podcast of thebattleground.eu. I've been thinking what the battleground really needs is a catchy slogan. I think that in today's political, cultural environment, you get further. And the one that really struck me was the battleground, making left melancholia fun again. No cheesy tagline, then. Yeah, well, I think probably we're only weeks away from making hats with that on it. So I think... Ultimately, I'd really like to be talking about something else right now, but the only thing to talk about is the situation in Ukraine. I've been reading that it's not really appropriate to say the Ukraine. There's some sort of colonial dimension to calling it the Ukraine as opposed to calling it Ukraine. So I'm going to try very hard to call it Ukraine. I just sort of called it the Ukraine for years. There's probably a good reason for it. So that's that's what I'm going with. Likewise, a lot of journalists over here are adjusting to the fact that they can't call Kiev, Kiev, and so on. A lot of Americans really didn't know that Ukraine was a thing, except for the fact that Donald Trump tried to blackmail the leader of the Ukraine into opening an investigation into Hunter Biden's dealings as part of his political campaign against Joe Biden in the lead up to the presidential election. It went nowhere. And partly, I think, because the president of Ukraine was in that moment smart enough to know that he didn't want to get in the middle of an internal American political conflict. So probably all for the best that he kept his nose out of it. And it doesn't seem to have done Trump any harm since basically, as far as Republicans, the Congressional Republican Party are concerned, film could surface of Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin drowning puppies while urinating on an American flag, and they'd pretty much be okay with it. I'm, I'm pretty convinced at this point. Yeah, he is one of those unusual figures. Does the right in the UK fetishize Putin in the way that the American right seems to? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, the, the British right is even more kind of pathetically engaged in this kind of thing, I think. Yeah, it seems like on both sides of the Atlantic, there's a lot of kind of penis envy for Putin, though, on the right. In this country, though, the right is kind of pathetically trying to live vicariously through other right-wing movements and parties in different parts of the world, whether it be the US or Russia. It could easily be somewhere else, though, like Hungary. The Tory right has sent advisors to Hungary in the past to try and pick up lessons from Viktor Orban. Yeah, it's an old it's an old story here. There was a really pathetic moment right before the invasion happened where Tucker Carlson, the lead running dog at Fox News, got out and said that he thought that Putin was okay because Putin had never called him a racist. I think everybody watching that who wasn't a glassy-eyed foxista was thinking to themselves, well, it doesn't mean you're not a racist. It means that he is one and he just doesn't care. But some elements of the Republican Party have kind of come out and said, Putin is a terrible guy. But the next step in the argument is that they then blame Biden for the invasion of the Ukraine as if somehow Donald Trump would have convinced Vladimir Putin not to go ahead with this adventure. And that just strikes, I think, anybody who has a lick of sense as being completely ridiculous. That's like someone who owns a chihuahua being convinced by the dog not to burn down their neighbor's house. I mean, what would Donald Trump have said to Vladimir Putin? Donald Trump was, was Vladimir Putin's lick spittle pretty clearly. I mean, he really likes the guy. It's a really funny thing about American culture that this aggrieved right now has this attitude that whatever a white male says is prima facie worth consideration. So whether it be washing your insides out with bleach or hitting a hurricane with a nuclear weapon, that was another one of Donald Trump's brilliant suggestions for how we should prevent hurricane damage parts of the United States. That's the kind of thing that on its face merits consideration just because of what kind of person said it. And Trump also recently suggested that the US bomb the shit out of Russia with planes marked with Chinese flags. Yeah, that was another brilliant idea that he had. 
And it's one of those things where his supporters will get out and say, well, he's just joking. But it's clearly, he's not joking. He's just that dumb. I mean, I guess there's just no other way to say it. But also, he has this idea that the world operates on exactly the level that he operates on, that it's all transactional, and that the things that would fool him would fool other people too. It's just, it's kind of sad to watch, except that it's also terrifying because there is a certain slug of the U.S. electorate, a certain proportion of the U.S. electorate, I think probably down in the 20% region of the American electorate, who will just vote for him no matter what. And then there's another 20% or so of the U.S. electorate that will vote for him based on a kind of story that they tell themselves about, well, everybody's corrupt, and at least he acknowledges it, and you know he's going to do things that we want done. He's going to cut the marginal gains tax rate. He's going to crack down on woke people. So that puts the United States in a fairly precarious position politically, you know, in a, in a certain sense that people have been talking in the media lately about how the, the war in Ukraine or the invasion of Ukraine is comparable to 9-11 in the sense that it's bringing people together, except that it's not really. I mean, the degree to which 9-11 brought people actually together is, is debatable too. But the effect that it's had in the United States is that the right, the mainstream right, if you will, and, and that's a that's a very fraught category in the context of the American political scene right now, has had to be a little bit more muted in their fawning over Vladimir Putin than they have been heretofore. Yeah, there's been a slight shift on that over here as well. However, there are still like people on GB News being defensive about Putin or trying to portray him as a great Machiavellian genius, which is increasingly seems quite questionable given how badly the war is actually turning out then. But it, it, I think it's generally true that this war is kind of playing into kind of contours of the so-called culture wars on both sides of the Atlantic. Definitely in this country, what we're seeing is a lot of what you might call the centrist dads are now like turning into super hawks and demanding retaliation, demanding fly zones, demanding the toughest economic measures possible and accusing everyone who disagrees with them of appeasement, being Neville Chamberlain of Munich, all the rest of it. While at the same time, you have a section of the right and of the left who are, to some degree, especially on the right, more sympathetic to Putin. On the left, it's more of a question of not wanting to appear to be on the side of Western imperialism, more or less, or on the side of NATO, let's say. So there's a reluctance among some on the left to be overly damning of Russia right now, even though I think most leftists in the UK were completely shocked and caught off guard by this. I don't think anyone really expected Putin to not just invade Ukraine, but to try and take Kiev. Yeah, the whole situation with Ukraine and Vladimir Putin's invasion has sort of highlighted the way that Vladimir Putin has viewed on the American right and the way it's sort of played into the culture wars in this country. It's been clear since the very early days of Donald Trump's political campaign that he and a lot of other people on the right really fetishize Vladimir Putin because he's white because he's notionally Christian, although exactly to what degree his values are commensurate with those of Jesus Christ, as open question. Uh, he's anti-woke, cracks down on the LGBTQ community. He cracks down on sort of liberal dissent, which conservatives or right-wingers in the United States are really down on when somebody else is doing it, although when they're invading government buildings, it's perfectly fine. 
And this has really come to the fore in the days since the invasion. Fox News has been kind of chasing its own tail. It's not really sure whether it's supposed to be for it or against it. It's one thing if the Russians or the Soviet Union or whoever wants to stage an attack on people they don't care about or people they view intrinsically as terrorists. It's quite another if Russia wants to attack or invade a country populated by people that they read culturally as white. And that's a big difference for them. And it's it's really created a lot of turbulence within the right-wing media ecology because it's not clear. I mean, their only out is to, to blame Joe Biden, which is a pretty hard sell too, although there's a kind of desire to blame Joe Biden for practically everything these days. I mean, gas prices have really gone up. They've practically, I think they've almost doubled, at least in some places since the beginning of the invasion. And it's kind of funny because if you look at the economics of inflation and the economics of gas prices, the ability of the president of the United States to affect gas prices in the short term is almost nil. But it's one of those things that makes a good soundbite for people on Fox News. And I hear it reflected by people all the time. You'd be waiting in the supermarket line or you'd be standing around any place where old white men are congregating particularly. And you'll hear this, oh, Joe Biden, high gas prices, inflation, what have you. It's a part of the echo chamber of the, the right-wing media ecology rather than any sort of considered analysis of the situation, which is not surprising because that's how American politics works. And, and I suspect that it's how politics work, generally speaking, in the, in, the, in the environment, the media environment of the North Atlantic world and the Americas, which is really what I know about. It might work the same elsewhere, but not in any position to say. Uh, but I think the big question is, what kind of endgame could Vladimir Putin actually be thinking of in Ukraine. And it's pretty clear that he's not going to be able to set up another government on the model of Yanukovych in those places where Russians have taken over urban areas, particularly in eastern Ukraine, their reception has not been very favorable. I mean, there was this sort of myth being propagated by Vladimir Putin that Ukraine didn't really exist, that Ukrainians were really just Russians, some of whom had become deluded enough to allow themselves to be led by a bunch of drug-addled Nazis or whatever, or however he wanted to characterize the government of Ukraine at this point. And it just hasn't played out in the way that it seems like he expected. In a lot of respects, it hasn't played out militarily in the way that he expected either. So the question of what kind of endgame you could reasonably expect to be getting to is, is an open one, I think, at this point. Yeah, it was very interesting to see that the peace talk have already moved into a space where the Ukrainians are considering full neutrality with regard to NATO. That's already kind of a position that they're moving towards. The last, or at least the last gesture towards us that I saw, the Ukrainian government offered neutrality with some security guarantees from Turkey and the US. That was, of course, immediately rejected. It looks like the Ukrainian president is moving towards that position. Now, if the Russians won't accept even that military neutrality, then what are they going for? Cleaving off these kind of eastern quasi-republics, cleaving off Crimea. Well, we knew that was a given. But as you point out, they cannot hold Kiev. They cannot impose the government. Even when they've had influence over Ukrainian politics, like with people like Yanukovych, it was really not consistent influence. Yanukovych was not, although he's often described as pro-Russian, it's a bit more complicated than that. And even so-called pro-Russian figures like Lukashenko in Belarus, they typically play both sides against each other. 
as much as they can. And if you look at the situation in Ukraine with regard to the political demographics or the political geography, Zelensky was extremely popular among Russian speakers in the East, for example, when he was elected. So it's hard to see what the end game could be, unless it is that they want full military neutrality and it's just not reached that point yet. But the risk of this just becoming a, a quagmire that goes on for years is very real. Well, the irony, too, is that I think that if you ask the leaders of NATO in their heart of hearts what they prefer, full military neutrality actually seems like a pretty good outcome. I don't think that there was a great deal of enthusiasm for integrating Ukraine into NATO. I don't think there's a great deal of underlying enthusiasm, I suppose I should say, for integrating Ukraine into the EU. I mean, there's been talk about fast-tracking EU membership for Ukraine. That's clearly a non-starter. But I don't think that the EU was really all that interested in integrating Ukraine even before this happened. So in a sense, the invasion could provide a sort of pathway to, I think, their preferred outcome with Ukraine, which is some sort of neutralized condition as a sort of buffer area between Russia and places that they actually care about, like Poland and the Baltic states. And I think the prospect that you raise of a quagmire lasting a long time is very real. I think that the chances, if they decide that they're going to occupy Kiev, that they're going to occupy the country generally, the chances that some sort of insurgency gets going are very high. They every reason to believe that insurgents would have access to high-grade weaponry in the same way that the quote-unquote insurgents in the Donbass region had access to. I mean, as another sort of side point, I think it's really funny that if you look at social media There'll be various bands, various groups or whatever coming out trying to raise money for Ukraine. And you'll see pushback from maybe people, maybe bots who can say to the effect that, well, what about the the dead babies in the Donbass region? To which one wants to say that's horrible. But to be clear, the insurgency in the Donbass region was created by the Russians. I mean, there was a certain amount of pro-Russian feeling in the Donbass region, but it wouldn't have gotten into the shooting condition that it was in if the Russians hadn't been funneling hardware and, let's be clear, people into that region to stir the situation up and make it into an actual insurgency of sorts. I mean, I think that Putin would have been much better advised just to integrate the two breakaway states in the Donbass region into some sort of Russian suzerainty, which is sort of what he was talking about in that weird meeting he had with the Security Council where he was about 40 feet away from the rest of them. That was the sort of idea that was really being mooted. I think the head of the FSB or whatever came out and said, well, I think that we should definitely integrate those two breakaway regions into the Russian state. And, and Putin said, no, no, that's not what's really on the table here. Seeming to suggest that, in fact, they were just trying to defend them, that they weren't trying to create any sort of situation of territorial aggrandizement or what have you. But now they've got this problem where any sort of long-term or even medium-term occupation of Ukraine, ends up costing them a lot of money just in terms of the money it costs them them to be there, irrespective of the continuation of the sanctions, the continuation of the exclusion of the Russian banking system from the SWIFT system. They've got big problems, and they only get bigger the longer they stay in Ukraine. Yeah, and the longer this goes on for, the more risky it becomes for Putin personally, because... There is discontent in Russia over this, precisely because Ukrainians and Russians are quite close, familiarly, historically. The idea that these two nations are completely distinct, not to play into the mythology that Ukraine doesn't exist, of course, but the idea that they're completely distinct nations that are 
easily separable is kind of a nonsense because so many Russians will have family in Ukraine and vice versa. So at the same time, Putin may have done this to try and extend his rule, and that may be the case if this is a short war or in terms of the impact of the sanctions. For a while, it could entrench his rule, but eventually the costs will become so great and there may be enough discontent in the country that there will be some sort of soft coup against him from within the regime, which is the last thing that he's looking for. In a sense, he's got a sort of pad, if you will, because of the oil and gas resources that Russia has. But the situation in Ukraine has caused problems now and will cause greater problems in the future with selling those resources to the EU. There's a certain amount of talk that this could be offset by selling it to China. But the fact of the matter is they don't have the infrastructure to do that in the volumes that they've been doing it to the EU. Also, the agreements they have for supplying oil and gas to China have built in a lower unit price than the agreements they have with the EU. So it's going to be a while before they could change that situation to really replace the kind of business that they were doing in in the energy market before this all happened. And also now they're even further away from the kind of technology transfer that they really need to get their older oil fields to produce. There's been a kind of declining production in their older oil fields. They want to bring new oil fields online in the Barents Sea, but they just don't have the technology to do it right now. I don't think they're going to get it from the Chinese. Like Those of you out there who are more familiar with the situation internationally with technology and geological engineering could, could correct me, certainly. But my understanding is what they really need is these partnerships with Exxon, these partnerships with BP, to allow them to acquire the technology and the know-how to get at these relatively more inaccessible sources of energy to keep their sales flow up. And while they're doing this, while they're sort of out of the market or having only more restricted access to the market, the other petroleum producers are benefiting from the increase in in barrel price. I mean, the OPEC has said that they're not going to cut production. The price has gotten up over $100 a barrel, which means that the fracking industry in the United States once again becomes a profitable proposition, which it's not if oil prices are down in the $60 a barrel region and below. So this causes a lot of problems. And it's, it's just unclear where he could possibly be taking this. Now, it's having a lot of interesting effects, like, for instance, the Germans, who ever since the Second World War have been pretty disinclined to be supplying military hardware to anybody, are now in the position of being willing to flow lots of stuff to Ukraine, which is an unfortunate circumstance, once again, from the Russian perspective, because it increases the material connections between the Germans and Ukraine. And if you're Vladimir Putin, what you want to be doing is, I would think, creating closer ties between Ukraine and Russia, not closer ties between Ukraine and Europe, which seems to be what's happening now. Well, that's the contradiction that's playing out here, because, you know, you think about this a bit in terms of dialectics, Russian nationalist objectives in terms of a sphere of influence, in terms of justifying certain foreign policy maneuvers, are kind of dependent on there being a threat from NATO, right? But at the same time, NATO is also kind of dependent upon the supposed threat of Russian aggression and expansionism justify its own expansion. So the two are being drawn ever closer inwards. So as much as Putin may rationally not favour that, in in a sense, entrenching the the tensions and the dynamics with NATO that have gone on for the last 20 years, in a sense, it's in his interests, whether or not he realises that. You know, NATO expansionism, yes, it's undermined and eroded the Russian sphere of influence, but it's probably been helpful to him in terms of justifying what they did in Georgia in terms of justifying 
what they've been doing in Ukraine for the past 10 years, and to some extent, what they did in Syria. Yeah, there's a really interesting longer term historical dimension to this. I think it was Lord Ismay who said when he was Secretary General of NATO that the whole purpose of the organization was to keep the Americans in, the Russians out, and the Germans down. The Germans down is a moot point now. But the Russians out had been, I think, a, a moot point. I mean, there wasn't really much concern, even when the Russians dealt out that punishment beating to Georgia, even when Putin seized Crimea. I think there was still a sort of feeling in Europe that that was in their sort of sphere of influence. But the closer they get to Poland, the closer they get to Eastern Europe and the Baltic states, the more that powers up this sort of idea that NATO is a kind of meaningful organization again. I mean, I think before this situation arose, NATO was an organization in search of a purpose. And now they seem to have something closer to a purpose. I mean, it's unclear exactly what that might turn out to be. Although, I mean, another interesting dimension of this is there was a sort of feeling generally that the Russians were a sort of military juggernaut, that they were just, and I think that Putin believed this part of his own press, that they were just going to march into Ukraine, they would take Kiev, it would just be a sort of walkover. And that hasn't really been what's happened. And now, I mean, not to fanboy for the US military or anything, but I would be a lot more sanguine about the capacity of the US military, even fighting in Europe to hold off any kind of Russia. I mean, I think that the Europeans could probably do it, especially if they ramp up military production, which they're all looking like doing now. And Vladimir Putin has made it happen. The interesting thing about Putin is that it's so hard to read the tea leaves with that guy because, like Donald Trump, he seems to kind of talk himself into certain kinds of ideas. I mean, there's some aspects of Putin, Putin's policies, Putin's approach that are very rational, even if bad and reactionary. There's some parts of it that I have trouble understanding how you could look at this invasion from a rational perspective and think this is going to be a net win for Russia. Yeah, likewise. I mean, Patrick Coburn has compared it to the invasion of Kuwait by Iraq, actually, insofar as Saddam, likewise, he read it as, I'm running out of time because the Soviet Union is crumbling, therefore I need to strike now. You know, there's a nationalist case for taking Kuwait, if you're an Iraqi nationalist anyway. They're stealing my oil. <laughs> the US has kind of signaled they're okay with an incursion, similarly, in Ukraine. But then he goes too far. He tries to annex the whole thing. He thought it would be easy. And the US moves against him. In this case, the US isn't going to move against Russia, or at least it hasn't so far. NATO is sitting on its hands. That's a, that's a good thing if you don't want a total international bloodbath or even a nuclear war. NATO is not going to impose a no-fly zone, at least at this point. And yet, support, support for NATO is skyrocketing, and will do. However, it's the case that Putin has kind of called the bluff of NATO because he's effectively shown that they will not intervene in third countries, as it was, countries that are not in NATO, if the Russians are on the other side. You know, people will talk up, well, Ukraine's not in NATO, that's why they're being attacked. There's some truth in that. But NATO has intervened in non-NATO countries again and again and again. Kosovo, Serbia, Afghanistan. They've even attacked Somali pirates. So why not Ukraine? And the answer is obvious. It's thousands and thousands of Russian nukes. So it raises a lot of questions for NATO as an alliance, but it's, it does mean that their expansion is probably guaranteed. We'll see what happens if Georgia joins, if places like Finland start to move towards it. That would be a very big deal. 
Yeah, I think that the idea that the Finns, I mean, the Finns have been pretty comprehensively disinterested in NATO for a long time. And the fact that they now see, you know, it's better to be in the tent than out. Even if NATO isn't going to send troops into Ukraine, I think, even if NATO isn't going to send troops into Ukraine, and it's, it's clear that they're not, and it's probably a good thing that they're not. I mean, I, I think that it's a sign of at least some rational control of the situation that the no-fly zone has not been experimented with. I mean, that presents all kinds of prospects for escalation ways that make the situation significantly more dangerous. One alarming thing that's been going on has been the whole Russian, you know, there's a biological uh, weapons installation that was cleaned up in the eastern part of Ukraine, and, and we know about it. It's a secret. It's a U.S.-Ukrainian collaborative effort, which is, I think, pretty clearly not true. I mean, I haven't seen any evidence for this, which doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't exist, but the United States historically has mostly been pretty respectful of the chemical and biological weapons treaties. If you read David Hoffman's book, The Dead Hand, from a few years ago, one of the sort of interesting things about the biological and chemical weapons programs in the Soviet Union was that they were justified by the government to the scientists working on them with the proposition that the United States was violating the treaties, so it was okay if the Soviet Union violated the treaties too. So there's a kind of longer-term historical element to that. It's a little nervous-making that they're mooting this in public because why? Like, what? Okay, if it's trying to get to a sort of position of parity in the international information environment, that's one thing. If it's a precursor to, well, they were doing this, so we're going to do that, that's a more alarming turn of events. No, indeed. And again, stressing the time factor, the longer this goes on for, and the more it looks like the Russians aren't having the success that they've wanted, the more likely they are to turn to unconventional weapons, let's say, to try and hasten the outcome that they want. And Putin is showing some signs of desperation if the reporting is is accurate, and some of it definitely isn't accurate. But if a few thousand Russian troops have already died, that's pretty bad at this stage. They haven't been able to take Kiev so far. And there are reports of them bringing in outside forces from Chechnya and elsewhere. Because, of course, the Ukrainians are resorting to mass conscription and volunteers, so they could outnumber the Russian troop presence very quickly. So Russia will be forced to move to a position of mass conscription, and when that happens, arguably, he'll be in serious trouble with the Russian public. I mean, it's probably already in trouble, frankly, going by how many protests there have been, despite the massive crackdown that we've seen. These protests keep popping up in dozens and dozens of cities across the country. No doubt they're small and beleaguered, but the fact that they show up at all is significant. Yeah, Putin's position is like the position of many authoritarian rulers, based on not discomforting the population, basically allowing them to believe what they want to believe and just go about their business. But if the pandemic has showed us anything, it showed us that if you make someone's house explode, you're going to create solidarity around that. But if you make it difficult to get to Outback Steakhouse or whatever, that's the kind of thing that's going to cause people to get really upset or maybe just Americans. But I think you're really right that the longer this goes on in conventional terms without a kind of successful resolution, the more difficulty that that's going to create for Putin in terms of the domestic situation. Yeah. Well, this is a situation which is going to keep going. And much as I think both of us would like to be podcasting about something else, there's every likelihood that our next podcast is going to be about this. But that's all from us for right now. Thanks for listening.